So when I was four years old, we lived in a bomb shelter under the town of Livingston, Montana for, I think, like two days or something like that and became clear, yeah, Russia's not going to nuke us. This isn't, isn't the apocalypse. I'm Scott McGrew. Welcome to Sand Hill Road. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. This week, former venture capitalist turned entrepreneur, Mercy Grace. I guess I really enjoy our interviews where I show up, you know, when you're brand new to a new place. Yeah. <laughs> right? I've interviewed Mercy before, the first time in her first few weeks as a first-time investor at Lightspeed Ventures. I thought, now that she's a brand-new first-time CEO at Penobi, I'd check back in. So you are CEO. You yeah. have never been CEO before. No. What, yeah, what is that like? It's, uh, it's really fun to be CEO. It is a lot of responsibility, I feel, like I need to really do right by the incredible people who came to work for me and our investors as well. So I feel both a lot of freedom, but a lot of responsibility. You had a big success as an operator when you were at Slack, and then you became a venture capitalist, and now you're an operator again. Was was venture capital not your thing? Venture capital is so fun. Uh, wow, what an incredible role for someone who's super curious. And I think I learned an enormous amount, but I really missed being in the dirt with my other friends trying to farm vegetables and, you know, hoping something is going to spread out of the ground. What is Penobi? What does it do? Penobi is a platform for growth teams. We bring experimentation, insights, and metrics into one place, basically so that heads of growth can get promoted by managing up and managing the C-suite and getting all of the details right. And and pan, where did the word, the idea come from for the word? Pan is everything. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Obi is a Japanese belt that brings uh, everything together. And we came up with this uh, justification <laughs> later <laughs> uh, because how we started was looking for available URLs. And we found a six-letter available URL that had a nice ring to it. Yeah, it does. Yeah. Now, yeah. is there a service that does that or you just type in into the web browser? I don't know. Try a U now. There's uh, Yeah, there are some services that, that host a bunch of uh, free uh, or open what was, URLs. What was the runner-up? Uh, we really liked another one. My uh, co-founder and I are both a little goth, and we liked one called Anti-Pattern as this kind of challenger mindset. And Anna Pickard, who's one of our advisors and the first voice at Slack, really, um, very uh, quickly talked us out of that. <laughs> what did you learn at your time at Lightspeed? I learned so much, and I think the the thing that I really am bringing into the new company especially is 
what the perspective of a board member is and what the perspective of a CEO is, what they want from their growth teams, how they want to be communicated with, and what strategy at the actual strategic level really looks like and how that should and can influence the tactics. Can you give me an example of that? Yeah, so uh, as an investor, I would often ask CEOs and sometimes even their heads of growth for specific metrics. So I would want to see certain things laid out a certain way, and they would tell me, sure, we can get that together for you. And I would say, hey, don't do it for me. I mean, I want to see actually the data that you're looking at on a day-to-day basis, what's important to you, because of course, that's kind of part of my judgment about what kind of an operator they are. But I also want everyone to measure their businesses in a particular way, because I think that that's the clearest view into what's really happening. And so it was very interesting to see how other people were running their businesses, the things that really great CEOs had in common with each other, and how they presented the business and talked about it. And so I'm trying to bring a lot of that into Penobi to help people kind of by default be looking at the things that really great investors are going to care about. You were, I mean, you were a huge contributor to the growth at Slack. I forget the numbers, but it was it was from tens of thousands to millions uh, under as you were supervising growth. You're in a situation now in which growth is difficult for your company because you help other companies do something. Yeah. Uh, and that's a tough position to be in, in a, I don't even know what we call it, a softening market. Right. <laughs> Here we are in the softening market. Yeah, but at the same time, uh, it has. there's never been more pressure on growth teams. It's funny because I thought there was an intense pressure in what turns out to be the frothiest market, you know, of the last, I don't know, 50 or 100 years. And so it was very interesting to watch everything soften, everyone turn around. But I haven't heard about any uh, growth teams being um, uh, taken apart or uh, there's been, you know, some reorgs and things like that. But people are still very invested in growth. They just know that they need to do it uh, more efficiently and a lot more quickly than before. Are there things you learned doing growth at Slack that you are now using here? Absolutely. Like what? So I think the most important thing that uh, that we're bringing from Slack is an understanding that while getting all of the details right is very important. You know, you need to be scientific in how you're experimenting. You need to be focused on finding new opportunities and you need to be really scrappy in how you, you know, launch things and ship things quickly. It's also very important to tell the story of growth at your company well and to translate those facts that you're amassing into knowledge for the organization and to spread that knowledge cross-functionally so that your sales team can improve, so that you're in sync with marketing and their goals, and so that as a company, you're growing quickly in a way that other people can rely on you and you can rely on them. What's your hiring plan or or staffing plan? Where are you now? And I mean, a lot of companies are worried about the cost of human capital. Yeah, we, we're lucky to be pulling from uh, mostly the ranks of ex-Slack people. So of our 11 people who are on the payroll today, uh, 10 of us were in the first 200 people at Slack. I think that relieves a little bit of the pressure, uh, but it also means that we have a very senior team. So we're not hiring anyone with fewer than 10 years of experience, and that enables us to be fully remote as well. So my co-founder lives in Brooklyn. I live in San Francisco. We have a large presence uh, 
you know, commensurate to the size of our company in Vancouver and then people sort of all around the United States as well. You have an angel investment uh, from Stuart who founded Slack uh, and you have uh, investment from Index Ventures. Why not Lightspeed Ventures? Um, Mercy Grace is no longer a partner at Lightspeed. Okay. (laughs) And so I was really the person, you know, at the time that I started this company that really deeply knew PLG uh, there. And so I would be a great board member to myself um, (laughs) and then decided to sort of diversify and and look outside for another firm. Uh, So there's some hard feelings there? No. I talked behind the scenes with both sides and can say as far as I can determine, there was nothing untoward here, just a bad fit. Yeah, I don't know. Not sure how to how to talk about that. All right, fair enough. <laughs> Thanks. So, did you pitch Index or did they come to you? Oh, I pitched them. Yeah, <laughs> and actually, I had to have two really cool CEOs uh, email Danny before he would email me back. <laughs> but I think uh, part of the reason I'm so glad I did venture is, and I think a lot of founders don't know this necessarily, but as a VC, you get rejected all the time. And you get very used to having to almost bang down the door of a founder that you want to invest in. And so the fact that it went a little bit the other direction at first was literally like no skin off my chin. You know, popular culture, uh, you know, you watch uh, Silicon Valley on HBO or whatnot. Popular culture is the opposite way around, right? Is it's, you know, the entrepreneurs that are desperate to get into the VC office and and make their pitch. Yeah. Uh, But oftentimes I do hear that it is the VC that is chasing down the promising young entrepreneur. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's often the case. Yeah, and I think uh, that will always be the case for, uh, especially in frothy markets for for really top talent, uh, they'll get chased. And it's funny, since the launch of Panobi, my inbox is now, you know, full of pings from uh, a lot of uh, uh, venture capital investors and their uh, assistants. Yeah, having been on both sides, what advice would you give to other entrepreneurs and startups because you have seen both sides of that board table? Absolutely. I think the main thing is it is a numbers game. And there, for the founder, there is a lot about a venture firm that is um, sort of in the back room, right? You're in the front room, you do the pitch, and then they go into the back room. They may be invested in something that you didn't think was competitive, but the founder of that company is uh, perhaps pretty expansive in their plans for the future. And so they might not realize until you give the full pitch to the full partnership that actually this is a little bit too competitive. The partner who you really want to invest in your business may have just had to battle super hard and really put their reputation on the table with their partners and say, hey, this deal, I really want to do the Series B. That could have been two weeks ago. So they might not actually have the social capital at the firm at that time to do your deal as well. And so I think the main thing, just like getting any job, getting any investment, make your list, go through it, be strategic, be consistent, have a process, and you are running that process. They are not running the process. You are in charge. And don't take a note personally. Exactly. Yeah. Back after this. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, 
you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. I should ask, how does someone who majored in fiction writing become a software CEO? Oh, man, there's lots of jokes there, isn't there? <laughs> <laughs> I think the, the main thing that I learned from uh, getting a degree in fiction writing is uh, is really that you just have to sit down and grind it out. Getting that first draft out there is so important. And not being precious about your creative work is this credible, incredible emotional armor that you can wear. So the most important thing when you're trying to figure out what to build or an idea is to show people literally anything that they can react to. It can be a drawing on a whiteboard. It can be on pieces of paper. It will look like shit. And you won't feel proud about this thing, but it will elicit a response. It will start a conversation and it will inspire questions from your customer. And the same thing is true in fiction writing. You sketch out a character, you have an arc. Is this interesting? Where are you going with this? What does this make you think of? And those are all the sort of investigation of the human psyche that you do when you're designing products. Have you written since or often? Do you write Privately at home? Uh, I don't write fiction privately at home. Yeah, I do. Uh, I do love to write about product and uh, and I love to sort of blog, I guess, <laughs> which sounds so lame it in twenty twenty three. Like now that it's coming it? out, like yes. man, I should have a newsletter or something. <laughs> uh, but yes, I do. Uh, I love to write about. Um, I love to write to think. Is it possible that there's a a novel? Somewhere? <laughs> I think every human being probably has at least one novel. Yeah, but um, not all are majored in fiction writing. No, that's true. Yeah. The thing that I think about writing the most is uh, more something of a memoir. What would be the title of your memoir? <laughs> oh. oh, man. I, I often will uh, sort of uh, joke with, uh, with myself about that. I think something around that uh, reality is what we we have together. I was raised in a, in a new age cult, um, that, you know, sort of escaping the cult had a big influence on, um, on me as a young person and rejecting, uh, magical thinking had a big effect on me as well. And it has been scary for me to see my generation get really caught up in things like astrology and, basically snake oil tinctures and the idea that you have to do this major cleanse on your body when that's the function of your liver. And it's incredible that your liver evolved to do that. You know, I'm such in awe of the universe and I love reality and I think it's incredible. Um, And this desire to escape reality instead of making it better is something that has me worried. And I think there is you can be non-religious and still awed by everything. Um, it, it doesn't have to be, and I, you're free to believe it if you want to, it doesn't have to be a man and a woman eating an apple for humanity to be an amazing thing. Yeah, exactly. And for the universe 
to be so incredible. Uh, I remember when I was probably a teenager, I found a list of quotes from, I wish I could find it again, this uh, a list of quotes from great scientific thinkers and philosophers over the ages. And it was, you know, incredible uh, people saying, basically, we're at peak civilization. And so people in the 1400s, people in the 1700s, people in the early 1900s, they're like... We did it, guys. Here we wasn't are. There, wasn't there a patent? It was. I think he ran the patent office and said everything that's been invented ha- can be invented. Yeah, has been exactly, invented. exactly. And it's like, yeah, you can totally see from that vantage point why he would think that. Yeah. Uh, and so I love to remind myself of that, especially in Silicon Valley, when you see things and get used to them for a couple of years before it's on CNN and really in the mainstream media even still. Um, So things like crypto and stuff like that, we would see that and get honestly bored with it before then people were, really it was in the mainstream consciousness. There are lots of things, you know, Uber's a good example of it, that it's just so obvious. Yeah. But it took the, I mean, there's an emotional leap that has to happen where you get in a car with a stranger. Mm-hmm. Um, who has no, you know, state license to be picking anybody? Yeah, and that was a, that was a big leap. Yeah. Um, but a lot of the things that may amaze us, you know, in the next couple of years, we'll think in retrospect, well, duh. Yeah, exactly. I once read. I'm not sure who the quote uh, is should actually be attributed to, but that um, it's not that the truth was always obvious, but that once you hear it. Or once you hear a good idea, you're like, oh, of course, of course it's that way. Yes, that makes sense. That something that is true is becomes obvious. We started with the, uh, as we were talking about your memoir with the title, what is the, I know you haven't written it yet. Yeah. But what's the takeaway from Uh, You know, let this be enough. Let this be enough. And, and live your life that way. Be grounded in reality. Help the person that's in front of you. Don't save your intentions for, you know, a peaceful moment with your coffee in the morning. Say the difficult thing to the person that you love that you want to find forgiveness from. Don't have it be an internal thing. Don't, you know, tell a stranger and not that person, right? This is the one incredible life that we have and you should live it grounded in what it really is and then try to make that better. Did that come from experience or just Unfortunately, so, yeah. Yeah. So you do it different this time. Yes. <laughs> um, the the cult thing I knew I didn't know anything about that. What yeah. what is the now? Are your parents still in it? Uh, my my mom was until her uh, dying day. Uh, but uh, my dad left after we had a sort of uh, failed apocalypse. So when I was four years old, we lived in a bomb shelter under the town of Livingston, Montana, for. I think like two days or something like that and became clear, yeah, Russia's not going to nuke us. This isn't, isn't the apocalypse. The Nephilim are not coming for the United States of America. What we simply are saying, it's a nuclear age. It's common sense to have civil defense. And that is why we have fallout shelters. Church leader Elizabeth Clare Prophet speaking with ABC's Ted Koppel on Nightline in 1990, shortly after the end of the world prediction didn't come true. And that really disillusioned my dad, who's a very, uh, you know, intellectual thinker. And it really put him off his uh, his religious path. And he went actually a lot more into science after that. And you were part of it until you were how old? 
Uh, I, uh, you know, was raised quite deeply in it. So I, uh, you know, had a childhood where I wasn't allowed to listen to rock music, eat sugar or chocolate, wear the colors orange or red, um, tell people what our religion was either because we weren't in the main enclave in first Malibu, California, and then later uh, around Livingston and Gardner, Montana, just uh, north of Yellowstone. Uh, and so it was a very uh, isolating experience as a young kid to be base- basically raised outside of the United States within the United States. So we couldn't you know, watch TV and I have very different childhood memories from other people. Uh, I kind of left during high school. I just stopped participating in the rituals at home and with my mom. And then in college, I had quite an existential crisis and got into it um, again on my own as a maybe 18 year old and went back to Montana and spent some time with people my age and then was finally very turned off <laughs> by it when I came to it as uh, as an adult. And then I did decide that, you know, this is fully a cult. I don't need to cloak myself in magical thinking to live in the world. It must have given you some benefit or peace if you came back to it at one point. Yeah, it was a an encompassing myth about my childhood is that uh, we were these uh, avatars. So it wasn't uh, wasn't a Christian cult. It was this amalgam of um, Hinduism, some Catholicism, and then a lot of sort of like spiritualism from the 1920s. And it's related to Helen Blavatsky and that sort of spiritualism tradition. Um, the Philosophical Society was uh, had a big impact on it. And so there was a prophecy about us, about my generation of kids who were born into the church at the time, that we were these avatars, which are people who have uh, have died and relived and been through the cycle of karma and reincarnation for a long time, and that we had actually transcended our sort of quota and um, were coming back as um, a kind of demigod. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> so it's uh, you know, that's an intoxicating okay, yeah, personal myth to yeah. and it's uh I think you know hard to let go of that sense of really cosmic meaning and hard to then look around you, you know, at the sepia-toned reality and say, okay, this is also bright and jewel-like on its own. Well, and when you're taught something as a very young person, um, you know, I don't go to church, but on holidays sort of thing, but I was raised as a Protestant Christian, so that's my belief, but, you know, I'm rational to understand that other people have other beliefs that may be just as legitimate. Yeah. Uh, but but it's the one I default to because it's the one I was, you know, when I was in second grade, I went to Sunday school. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. My default is... Uh It's my job to save the world. (laughs) No pressure. Mercy Grace, CEO of Penobi. I mentioned this is the second time we've spoken to Mercy. You can find the first while she was at Lightspeed in the previous episode section of your podcast player. I asked the Church Universal and Triumphant for a reaction to Mercy's depiction of it as a cult. A spokeswoman said, quote, we've been called a cult for many years and... We believe the freedom of each individual is of paramount importance to society. Sand Hill Road is produced by Sean Myers under the leadership of Sarah Bueno and Stephanie Adruni. 
For more interviews with Silicon Valley's most influential entrepreneurs, check me out on TV at Press Here. That's Sunday mornings on NBC Bay Area and everywhere in the world on iTunes and at PressHereTV.com. 